I think a lot of Christians just think neighbor love equals humanitarianism and humanitarianism equals some kind of service provision. Mm. And, And part of the kind of thrust of the book is to really argue, no, we need to rethink neighbor love as a political relation. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. In today's episode of Christ and Culture, in keeping with our season-long theme of challenges to humanity, We'll talk with Dr. Luke Bretherington about a Christian approach to politics and humanitarianism. After that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, a listener favorite in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, business, even things like Taylor Swift, Nathaniel, from a Christian perspective. He really is a Swifty. I know he's a Swifty. (laughs) That's true. In today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about a sport that you may not have thought much about as sport, but you might have played. We call it chess. Here to discuss with us is our own Jacob Haley. Jacob is pursuing an advanced MDiv here at Southeastern, and he serves as this year's Dancer Fellow. So Jacob, tell us about the 2023 Speed Chess, not Speed Dating, Speed Chess Championship. So yeah, you're right. It is the Speed Chess Championship. You might have thought of chess as this very old, slow game with your grandpa. No, that's Monopoly, but go ahead. (laughs) But no, so one of the things that Uh, chess enthusiasts have been doing recently if they've been shortening the time constraints for chess so you can play like your classical games which are like an hour and a half perhaps for each player but you can also play blitz which is like five minute increments of the game you have five minutes to play an entire chess game or you can play it in three minutes you can even play bullet chess which is in one minute and the 2023 speed chess championship is basically a tournament about who is the king of speed chess so whenever you did in your particular version of speed chess, we're talking one, three, five, which one? Um, here at the speed chess championship, they did five minutes, three minutes, and one, and one is minute. This, is this virtual? Is this in person? Was this, was this televised on ESPN? Tell, tell me more about exactly how this went down. Yes, yeah, so it was streamed on YouTube. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> did you play? Were you on it? Uh, I unfortunately did not qualify. Okay. It was always next year. But it is virtual. And so the virtual thing is nice because if you have like 60 seconds to try to do, you know, like 30 to 40 moves for a chess game, things are going to go haywire really fast. And so it's also really cool because you can like pre-move. And so you play one move and then your opponent has like pre-moved 30 moves in response. And then all of a sudden, boom, the game is completely Mm. different now. Hmm. So who won? Magnus Carlsen won. Oh, what a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so actually Magnus Carlsen was not favored to win this one. Hikaru Nakamura was favored to win this one. They faced off uh, three times before, and Carlsen was leading two to one in terms of their matchups. Um, and it was uh, the everyone was clamoring for the narrative was will Hikaru and Carlson face off in the final, and the fans finally got that. Wow. So what what is the Queen's Gambit? Well, it depends on who you're asking. If you're asking an average person, the Queen's Gambit is Netflix, a Netflix show. Right. But if you ask someone else, uh, the Queen's Gambit is actually an opening with chess. And so a gambit is when you sacrifice material to gain a positional advantage. So it's when you move your queen pawn up front, followed by the pawn to the left of the queen pawn, and you sacrifice that pawn to gain control of the center. Do you ever use it? Actually, the Queen's Gambit was my opening of choice for white. Unfortunately, I've switched and now I play the Scotch game. Interesting. Okay, I've got more questions now. Scotch. Okay, I got more questions, but we're going to leave that for another episode. Here's what I want to ask you. One of our favorite metaphors, at least in English, is to compare when someone's playing chess versus checkers. And we talk about this in politics. We talk about this in personal relationships, all kinds of things. First of all, do you find that to be accurate? Uh, And secondly, how do we think Christianly about this whole game of chess in terms of the actual game itself, but then also the way in which it may uh, expand into our imaginations metaphorically. Yeah, so I totally agree with the metaphor of playing chess versus checkers, chess being the harder game, because 
actually checkers has been solved. That is, there's a best move to play in every single circumstance. So that way, no matter what's going to happen, you're, you're going to win checkers. So it's like an elaborate tic-tac-toe game yes, at this point. Precisely. Chess, however, has been solved near near the end of the game. So they're two completely different games. So I, I totally resonate with that metaphor. And in terms of how to think Christianly about chess, I typically think about chess through the lens of Ecclesiastes, that there's some inherent joy in the game of chess. You know, it's chess is really fun because it's the perfect combination of preparation and skill. Like you have to know what move to make in any given position. You have to be good at pattern recognition for the end of the game, which is called the end game. But alongside that joy, there's just an inherent uh, transientness to the game of chess because mm. We had the 2023 Speed Chess Championship ended on Friday. Magnus Carlsen was crowned the king of Speed Chess. And today, he and Hikaru Nakamura, who he defeated in the finals, are actually facing off again in another tournament. And mm. now Magnus has to defend his, his reign once again. And so that just shows kind of like the message of Ecclesiastes, that the sun rises and the sun sets. The wind blows and, and chases itself all over the plains of the earth. So, and so checkers is too deterministic for you. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> there is yes. no free will. There is no free will at checkers. <laughs> there is no free will. Yeah. And that's the advantage. I think that you can, you can think how you can think Christianly about chess is that you might win one game, but eventually you're going to be too old and someone else is going to take the title from you. Someone's going to outwit you, out clever you, out think you. Mm-hmm. Actually, true. I was asking about the Netflix show. Did you like it? I did. I did like it. It was a really interesting show. I, personally, I feel like it wasn't a whole lot about chess as much as it really just followed the drama um, of the main character there. Well, Jacob, uh, not very many people uh, would catch Ecclesiastes as being a joyful book. And so thank you for that uh, remarkable insight. However, I think you are spot on about how chess in many ways teaches us that it's, there's always another round, there's always another. And what would you say about those who perhaps chess becomes more than a game? It becomes an identity or perhaps an idol. Yeah, and there's nothing more infuriating in chess than losing because there's nothing more debilitating than realizing that I just accidentally blundered a piece. I just gave up my bishop for no apparent reason or my opponent has started a sequence of moves that is going to ultimately terminate in me being checkmated. And there's this sense of helplessness there that you just can't help but have to kind of quell that anger there. And it helps to remind you that you ultimately are not in control of everything. And sometimes you just get outsmarted, outplayed. And so it's a lesson in humility. That is one of the many lessons you can get from chess. <laughs> well, Jacob, uh, I think I'll have to dust off my old chessboard. I'm, I'd be happy to give you some lessons. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say be happy to play. He said yeah. he'd be happy to be this master teacher. <laughs> I, I, I picked that. I picked up on that. This is great. Jacob, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu give. In response to the challenge of poverty and global needs, many of us in the West default to humanitarianism as a solution. But the question is, should we default to that as a solution? And here to discuss that today is Dr. Luke Bretherton. Dr. Bretherton is the Robert E. Cushman Distinguished Research Professor of Moral and Political Theology and Senior Fellow of the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, just down the road from where we are at Southeastern Seminary. His latest book is Christ and the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy from Erdman's, published in 2019. Dr. Bretherton, thank you for joining us today. Absolute delight and pleasure to be with you. If you will, before we jump into some of the questions, can you take just a just a minute to tell us who you are, where you're from? You clearly have a deep South Georgia accent. <laughs> if you can just, just tell us uh, briefly a little bit about yourself. 
So yeah, so I, as you can tell, I'm I'm not from uh, North Carolina or or the <laughs> South generally, or even America. So yeah, from <laughs> London, London, are born and bred. Uh, been teaching at Duke just over a decade now, and uh, very much yeah, grew up in London, um, and uh, have been involved in various forms of democratic politics, both in the states and uh, back in London, and. Uh, worked kind of got into thinking about moral pol political questions theologically from involvement in working in Eastern Europe uh, just after the Berlin Wall came down and mm. a whole lot of questions raised in that context about how the church engaged uh, you know this post-communist world and the, the kind of reconstruction and, and the, what we're going to talk about today in some ways is born out of that on the ground experience as well yeah Tell us a little bit about your church background. Did you grow up in a Christian home and in, in the church or what was your experience there? Yeah, very much so. I, I sometimes just describe my background as kind of ang Anglicostal, uh, which mm -hmm. was so my very much church kind of cradle Church of England, but parents very involved, kind of came out of the wave of conversions of the Billy Graham crusade in the 1950s. Um, they didn't actually get converted to the Crusades, but very much in that moment uh, was their conversion and then got very involved in the early stages of the charismatic movement. Uh, mm -hmm. My father was actually used to go out with the diocese. It's kind of weird mashup of, of old and new that each diocese has a diocesan exorcist. And uh, my father <laughs> used to go out with the di diocesan exorcist. But they were they were very interestingly, and this is very formative for me, um, so very very, very, very committed, fervent Christians, very much seeking after what the Spirit was doing. But also that for them meant they were very involved in mm. forms of kind of helping their neighbours. So they, big issue in the in where we grew up, um, this was in, they moved into a place called Notting Hill, since made famous by the movie. But they moved in the early 60s. Uh, it was very racially divided. It had a notorious slums, kind of set of slum landlords. Yeah. And was an area that a lot of folk who moved from Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago, the kind of Caribbean more generally, had moved into the area because of racist housing kind of rules and things. They could only get access to housing in the slum landlords who would treat them appallingly and often kind of steal their deposits and throw them out the houses and this kind of stuff so my my parents were a lot of people were in church with such folk and were appalled by this and so set up a housing association to provide good quality housing to low-income families and that ran out of our front room for kind of 15 years or so before they got offices and uh, so that that sense of your Christianity, you're both kind of fervently seeking God while also mm. seeking to love your neighbor in very real and tangible ways. And, and they wouldn't have thought of themselves as kind of social justice warriors or whatever, yeah. but the sense yeah. that you don't treat the 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 neighbor as a kind of commodity or mm. someone to be as an enemy, but as someone to be loved in very real practical ways. That that was yeah. kind of central to the to the house I grew up in. It sounds like hospitality. So we're going to talk about humanitarianism in a minute, but it sounds like hospitality was deeply bred into you from a young age because of this. Yeah, very much so. And and that that was and and I think another aspect of this, which was very much marked in their own lives and something I've been thought a lot about and feels very salient to our own day was the ways in which you didn't have to like or agree with or approve of the people you worked with, but you could do very good work together. So a good mm. example of this was um, the elementary school I went to got burnt down. Uh, and my mother was on the board of that. And my parents worked very closely with someone called David Randall, who's the local Anglican priest, um, who was a part of the part of that school as well. And David Randall was openly gay, uh, Christian socialist, one of the founding figures of the nuclear disarmament movement. Uh, everything my father, who was loved Mrs. Thatcher, very culturally conservative, uh, and railed against all the kinds of things that David Randall uh, <laughs> stood for. And they never liked each other. I mean, I know they never liked each other, but David was in our house, you know, for many years. Every Thursday, they would eat together, pray together, and do good work together. And that sense in which you can actually have profound disagreements, ideological and theological, with someone, but also recognize 
that you can make a shared contribution to make life a little mm. better for those around mm. you. That seems a almost impossible kind of possibility in today's yeah. context, but that was very much, and and that was hospitality again. Was you you it wasn't just you care for the least, the lost, and the last. It was actually hospitality marked how you related to everyone around you, and and that didn't necessarily mean you liked or agreed or had to affirm what they were about or who they were but it did mean you could relate to them as a human who you had a shared life with mm. and, and that that made possible kind of ways of working together uh, to kind of generate a more just and generous common life and if ever there was a time to cultivate this ability to love and disagree at the same time uh, perhaps this is it yeah. So yeah. let me ask you this before we turn to humanitarianism. Now, uh, in light of that kind of background and even the questions that emerged uh, from your time in Eastern Europe, did you expect to be in the academy or, or what, what were you planning for many years ago? <laughs> no, I kind of fell into it by accident, actually. I at the, the, the experience of working in, in Central Eastern Europe, which was a kind of context where you had the kind of legacies of state socialist structures, a kind of hyper-turbocharged capitalism coming in and ripping everything up. It was the rise of the, the kind of oligarch class, as we now call them. Um, uh, you had the rise of leaders, kind of non-ideological, often very right-wing populist leaders uh, like Milosevic and Mechiar in Slovakia, who were using Christianity as a kind of way of generating support, but in kind of linking it to highly nationalist projects. So the emergence of technically what we call ethno-religious nationalism, or today sometimes referred to as Christian nationalism. But that was all going on, as well as the church doing remarkable, Christians doing remarkably beautiful work, you know, rebuilding society, caring for the least, the lost and the last. So uh, that raised a whole set of questions for me. And someone said, oh, it sounds like you should do a PhD. You've got some questions here about how does the church navigate a context of contested plural space and also generate constructive relationship with state and market and uh so yeah so I ended up just going to King's College London in London I didn't really know anything I didn't really know any anyone who'd done a PhD in theology at all um that was just the local place turns out it was a very good place to do theology at that time with some really wonderful um theologians like Colin Gunton and John Zazoulis and Yes. Other yes. Who did you study with there, Luke? I, I, my supervisor was uh, someone called Michael Banner, but but Colin Gunton and John Zulus were kind of big theological influences and kind yeah, of trained me in, in theology. Um, so, so yeah, so that, so that, and then my supervisor went away for a year, and I, got, I kind of filled in for him as an adjunct, effectively doing doing teaching, and fell in love with teaching. So that that kind of, you know, being privileged to to keep doing that since but I I'd always intended to go the original intention was to go back into work in non kind of non-governmental or charity sector or policy work but being able to bring a strong theological lens to mm. the work um so the, this sense of kind of vocation to translate the church to politics and politics to the church has really characterized my work and mm. always tried to keep kind of one foot out of the academy uh, and, and trying to think from that place and not just, you know, write erudite footnotes on classic texts, but yeah. try and wrestle yeah. with questions that are out there for the church and for the, yeah. and the ways in which Christians are wrestling with trying to, what does it mean to really speak and act meaningfully in, in relation to the wounds of the world? Mm. Mm. So good. You mentioned in your book, Christ and the Common Life, you have a chapter on humanitarianism. And I mentioned early on in kind of the introduction, oftentimes we assume that humanitarianism is the solution that we should we should be applying or the approach we should take. But is this a, a fair assumption? Is it, in fact, a good thing that we should be pursuing? Well, humanitarianism is, is it's I don't know if you have this expression. It's a very weird English expression that it's like the curate's egg. You probably don't have this. It's an old 90, I think we 18th don't, we century don't have expression. That expression. Yeah, so the curate's egg in, 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 the, in the idiomatic terms of, of uh, English language in, in from the other side of the Atlantic is it means it's good in parts. Um, so it's not it's like not like your favorite boiled egg, which you tuck into in the morning for breakfast. Uh, you kind of have to pick out the good bits and leave the bad bits. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's a curate's egg in that sense. It's 
both good in terms of you know we don't want to be the Grinch and say giving money to the to the those worst off and the afflicted and uh, those suffering famine or the ravages of war is is a bad thing but equally we need to think kind of a little bit more granular way about quite what's going on in this moral and political relation is it is it straightforwardly and unabashedly good or are there kind of questions we need to ask about it and and I think part of the part of the context addressing it and beginning Christ in the common life with the chapter on humanitarianism was twofold one is I think a lot of Christians just think neighbor love equals humanitarianism yes. and humanitarianism equals some kind of service provision mm. and and part of the kind of thrust of the book is to really argue no we need to rethink neighbor love as a political relation so I've got to kind of unhook everyone's imaginations from a humanitarian service provision paradigm for understanding and enacting neighbor love into what I'm arguing for that really the, the best way of embodying neighbor love today is, is through a particular kinds of democratic politics, which take, which build up and take the agency of each person seriously. D democracy here is not the kind of partisan politics that we, you know, feeds on news, news feeds, but mm -hmm. much more this really basic assumption of a kind of properly understood democratic small p or small small d democracy small small p politics of yeah. really how do we create a world in which people have some say and agency in determining their living and working conditions um and we can get into thinking about some of the problems of humanitarianism but but one of the questions there is if we if we think of neighbor love in purely in terms of service provision of doing for others and or, or often that means doing for others what they can do for themselves mm -hmm. then actually we're denying that agency and we're acting in a kind of often a paternalistic manner yeah uh, that reinscribes our agency and our power and our strength rather than acting in a way that builds up the agency of others so that we can move into a form of shared or common life of, yeah. of reciprocal relational mutuality, yeah. which ultimately, I would argue, in, in, on kind of theological grounds, we look to the Trinity, look to the pictures of the church in the, in the epistles, is one of mutual fellowship. That's the ultimate mm. goal. Yeah. of neighbor love is a movement into mutuality or mutual fellowship or communion yeah. not a one-way gift to another which makes them dependent on me yeah and, and that that was the greco-roman model of the patron client relation and i think a, the part of the problem with a lot of humanitarianism today is it replicates that kind of ancient greco-roman model of patron client relations mm rather than the picture of the church we're given which is the movement to mutual fellowship or mutual mutual mm -hmm. giving of gifts to generate yeah. fellowship let me let me a friend of mine says double click on this for just a minute because I, yeah. I really want to drill down here and understand or at least clarify for our listeners first when you say that we need to reimagine our relationship with neighbor as a at first a political relationship I really want you to clarify what you mean because I I would imagine if I were to survey, my congregation or just the ordinary rank and file Christians among evangelicals and what have you, the only categories that they would have for a political relationship is, well, are you blue or are you red? Like, right. which is it? Are you, are you Republican yeah. or Democrat? But you mean something different than that. Can you just, yeah. just explain and clarify what you mean there? Yeah, no, it's a very important and it's a very key distinction. Cause I think that, you know, when you say politics, exactly what you say, you say politics, most people I say to my students, I say to my family, you know, they, they yeah. usually think, yeah you know democrat republican what the arguments between fox news ms nbc whatever it is um that's not that's 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 one aspect of politics but we shouldn't collapse it's not the first or primary form of right, politics right. theologically or philosophically understood and shouldn't dominate our imaginations for what politics is although it does 
and we need to unhook our imaginations from that and yeah. reimagine it in a, in a more theological biblical key and so politics first first and foremost is really is this kind of question of what happens when i meet someone i don't like don't agree with find scandalous or whose way of life disgusts me yeah there's there's really only four options uh i can kill them as the one and a lot of human history including christian history is full of examples of that mm. i can create a system where i don't have to talk to them or take them seriously because i can create a system to coerce them or dominate them to get them to do what i want without having to take them seriously and again a lot of human history is is about that or i can uh, make life so difficult for them that they have to flee i persecute them i you know just make life horrible so i've got the power to do that and again a lot of human history and a lot of christian history is full of right. that kind of response right. to people we don't on both sides on both sides yeah on both sides no exactly um or the final option the fourth option i can do politics i.e i can negotiate some kind of common life amid asymmetries of power and conflicting visions of the good we don't have to agree with each other or like each other or 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 affirm each other but we have to recognize that i can't survive let alone thrive without others we are not create, created to be alone as alexander pope put it no man is an island under himself so a basic creaturely condition of life is that i cannot survive let alone thrive without others so if i'm going to survive i need others i can't live alone and if i if i'm going to have others in my life they're going to be people i disagree with and people i don't like and people who i find difficult or scandalous yeah. and at that point i can either kill coerce uh cause to flee or do politics i mm. negotiate some kind of common life amidst yep. asymmetries of power and often radical differences of visions of what the good life entails or what's really important about life and so politics is just the name we give for forming a common life mm. and and it can involve uh you know we see politics when pastors and elders negotiate should we take the pews out of the sanctuary we yeah. see politics when uh people in the firm don't resort to litigation i they don't call on the state to solve law to solve their problem they negotiate uh, how we're going to have the firm what's the future of the firm in the kind of boardroom negotiations that's that's a political negotiation it's about this form of shared life in the firm there are differences of power different visions of the future of the firm involve and they solve it through dialogue not killing coercing or causing each other to flee um likewise if the kids down the road making a noise do i pick up the phone uh, and call call the police i i call on the state and the violent coercive force of the state to solve that problem mm. or do i have enough trust and relationship with them to go out and say hey guys i'm trying to work can you like keep yeah. it down a bit and yeah. i we negotiate and yeah. solve that problem together and that you know the same thing applies at uh how do we get potable water from point a to point b yeah how do i you know sort out housing uh good quality housing for these people in this place are we negotiating that amidst different understandings of what good housing or good education or good health or good you know how to solve issues like potable water yeah we're we doing that through a process of dialogue negotiation amidst differences of power and disagreements or are we solving that problem through killing coercing or causing to flee and i yeah. i just get my way yeah um yeah, so that, that's that's really that's that's when we strip it down there's a lot of confusion a lot of you know we we stick a lot of stuff over the top of it but at its at its most basic that's what politics yeah. is it's it's that's some so kind helpful. of building a common life so helpful the categories are so clear and everyone can relate to that everyone can understand that and even probably uh, remember times in their own life when maybe they wanted to choose all yeah. of those four options. <laughs> so let me ask you that about humanitarianism. You made this point a minute ago where often we we tend to assume humanitarianism is kind of this one-way transaction, but in the process of doing so, we perhaps even inadvertently, we are, as you said, sort of circumscribing our own authority and power over the people that we 
claim to be trying to help. Instead, this needs to be unto an end of mutuality. Hmm. So here, I want to just drill down here on this. Is this similar to the language, the New Testament language, Pauline language of equipping, uh, especially from within the church, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, um, rather than kind of this sort of one-sided, I do it for you, or I give you what you need, don't ask any other kind of question, might we expand that kind of equipping imperative from within the church, even to how we relate to our neighbors in society? That's a, that's a lovely way of putting it. I, I, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful way to frame it, actually. It's, it's, it's not that we don't do things for others. So a good, good, good example would be, you know, if there's uh, someone, let's say, uh, a single parent who, you know, I see is got real talent, leadership potential, they're young, they're struggling to kind of get by in the world. And I'm trying to build them up to exercise their leadership and discover their agency whether it's in the church, whether it's in the local community, whether it's in the business. I can, I can repeatedly do things for them so that they're left in that position, or I can act in a way that, it, that creates the conditions through which they can act. So I can arrange childcare, or if they don't have a car, arrange a lift or transport, uh, ensure that the conditions are there, the material conditions are there for them to be able to act with the aim that at some point they are able to act with parity or or in relationship with me. Now, we'll have different gifts to share. There's going to be different kinds of ways we show up in the world. But there's a sense in which on that kind of one Corinthians model, we all have gifts to share. And so, But uh, the equipping of the saints, and I would say the, the, the ways we act with justice and generosity in the world are about enabling people uh, to act so that they can have some say and agency in creating not their own world, but this shared world on which we all depend. Like, again, going back to my earlier point, we cannot survive, let alone thrive, without others. And to, and to thrive, we all need a just and generous world. So this sense in which the point of intervention is not simply service provision to to provide this service but to move towards a world in which we're all enjoying a more just and generous world in which each person is able to exercise their gifts now that might take radical intervention for me and and at certain points me to act more i can act more i've got greater agency but the direction of that action is to enable then a at some point, the reciprocity, yes. not yeah. the endless removing of agency of, yeah. of, of the other. So you you used a great uh, a British metaphor earlier of how did you say um, the curate's well, egg? The, the curate's egg. So <laughs> I'll turn it around, and you tell me if I'm misunderstanding. But to very much put it in layman's and kind of illustrative terms, is this a thicker approach to the old proverb of? give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for life. Is this, is this that kind of thing, but in a, but in a thoroughly kind of theological and in a much broader kind of politically relational uh, approach? Kind of, I, I mustn't, I hate that adage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, so the two things to say is one, there's one, there's two ways to mishear what I'm saying. Mm. One way to mishear it is the old uh, kind of, um, bootstrapping metaphor you know like somehow you've got to create just get people to kind of they can pull themselves up by the bootstrap and we don't yeah, want to create right. dependency so that's not what i'm saying at the heart of what i'm saying is this vision of communion as the fulfillment of what it means to be a, a human creature and so it's in my i i can't be me without you you can't be you without me we each need to exercise our gifts for true communion to emerge mm. so it's not the individualistic notion of each person makes their own world by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps it's how do we create a shared world of meaning and action and so how do I act to ensure that you can also contribute to that shared world? Because my ability to participate in this shared world on which I survive, let alone can't thrive, 
needs you to exercise your gifts, whether yeah. that's at a local level, a national level, a global level. So the bootstrapping metaphor is highly individualistic and denies any shared world or interdependency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. on the one hand. And then on the teacher mount of fish is also problematic because A, it can often be read in that individualistic kind of bootstrapping yeah. way, but also it doesn't address the broader question of well what happens if there's a factory pumping mercury into the into the lake true example up the river i can teach him to fish but unless i'm paying attention to the broader structural conditions under which fish are able to act or can the person take the fish to market to sell them uh or uh you know can they keep them refrigerated in order to get like what are the broader material yeah. conditions yeah. under which yeah. that act of fishing takes place? And so unless that goes back to my point about making sure the person has uh, childcare and a lift to the place yeah. they need to get to, what are the actual material conditions under which people can act their agency? And that's a political and broader structural question. So the teacher man of fish kind of adage, the problem with it is, is it, often isolates and makes very individualistic a solution to the problem and that's a bigger that fits into a much bigger problem we've got yes. in our day yeah which is whether it's climate change whether it's racism whatever we can put up big structural problems wicked problems you might say but that seem you know huge yeah we often think of the solution to those in terms of what a horrible technical term kind of individual responsibilization but like render it's it's we're we're told to the, the answer to these problems is some kind of workshop that yeah. means i deal with my racist consciousness and we leave untouched the broader structural conditions yeah. or i buy a greener washing machine and we leave untouched the broader material conditions so we also have to keep in view that you know, when we say no human is an island unto themselves, or we cannot survive, let alone thrive without others, that's not simply a, a question of interpersonal relations, that mm. we can't survive outside of certain kind of material conditions, which make yeah. our lives possible. Yeah. And so attending to those is crucial to a- addressing um, yeah. these, these broader uh, questions of agency yeah that's really helpful and and therefore this this question of um humanitarianism often not only is orientated towards a service paradigm but often leaves and doesn't address the broader question of how do you change the structural conditions and that's and to do that necessarily is a political process now the joy of that is that can be a feel overwhelming, but the joy of that is that in the coming together to address this as a political problem through shared democratic struggle, we each are able to exercise our agency and create these more mutual relationships rather than paternalistic service paradigm relationships. And yeah, so the yeah. movement from hum- a humanitarian model to a more democratic model. Yeah. is a movement to from me giving uh out of a noblesse oblige to others i call it the kind of downton uh, abbey house model <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh i to me i've got so much i should give to those less fortunate right. than myself right. we move from that kind of paradigm uh to a shared political struggle movement where we each have to be involved and give our gifts and in as we seek to change the broader structural conditions so that so, so that not right, just one me, person but each of us can flourish yeah that's so helpful so let me take let me take my uh my adage that you don't love and let's expand it and see if i right. can begin to get closer to it so it's not merely and let's use the language of equipping just to keep with that right. pauline language there yeah uh it's not merely that i'm equipping this man to fish or this person to fish but i'm also equipping this person to relate properly to the rest of the neighborhood to the rest of the body politic, and to also, even when it comes to the factory that's located close to the pond that we fish in and love so much, um, even learn how to, one, appreciate what they do, and two, negotiate even disagreements dis, uh, disagreements, so that we can continue fishing in that pond in such a way that it's mutually beneficial for the entire neighborhood, yep. and so that even he could teach his own grandkids, and this might be legacy handed on. 
and yeah. equipment that is holistic across the relationships of person to person, as well as person to community, as well as person to creation. Yeah. Uh, what are the conditions yeah. even for the whole of creation that ensure yeah. a healthy pond, healthy fish, healthy people, and the sort of mutuality of the neighborhood across across yeah. all of these? That, no, that's exactly it. And that's exactly. It. But I think the other, the only thing I'd add to that picture is uh, that to discern whether the fishing, the teaching of the fishing is the place to begin or whether uh, an agitation to get the factory to stop pumping mercury and find somewhere processing the mercury in a yeah. more productive yeah. way, helpful ways, yeah. helpful ways, um, is that I listen to that person's uh, story they tell about that place yeah. and what they love uh, and what, what they're grieving the loss of um we used to have our own fishing industry and it's now been lost uh, because mm. they're no fishing like so so if i if i come in and say i'm going to teach this person to fish because i've already determined what their need is right and without listening to them right and hearing their story i'm i'm not it's not simply that i'm being acting paternalistically but i'm i've actually dehumanized the person i've yeah. treated them as a as a problem to be solved rather than a person to be loved yeah and so i'm 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 denying that they have a voice i'm not I'm not listening to them i'm denying that they have a story to tell that might teach me something mm. about how to live well and what's mm. going on here and i'm denying uh, that they have a face that i need to respond to mm. and so yeah. actually beginning with listening before we act and i would say that's a fundamental christian claim yeah um, that true. undergirds all of this it, it goes back to the most precious uh line for the jews if the shema hear o israel the lord thy god you should lo love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul so it, we, how do we how do we hear god exactly yeah. we have to begin with hearing uh and then uh, and then that plays out in hearing our, how do we love God? Is we love God through loving our neighbor. Mm. We have to listen to our neighbor to have a sense of what's really going on. And too often, and this again is in the service paradigm, well, I've got this grant and I, I know that there's this homelessness problem and they're all going to set up soup kitchens to address that. Right. And no one actually listens to the people who, right. who are experiencing. so much and ask yeah. so little. Yeah. yeah, that's so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Brotherton, how, if, if you were just talking to any ordinary congregation of Christians and they were to say, we've read your stuff, we've heard the podcast, what do we do next? Right. What would you tell them? How do we how do we begin to sort of have a renewed imagination for this and a renewed approach to a, a very thorough, thoroughgoing political and Christian humanitarianism or common life as a whole? Yeah, so I think I think the kind of simplest thing to do is what I, I begin going back to what I was saying about listening. Mm -hmm. um, and would kind of to do it's, it's a horrible word but kind of an audit of what the church is already doing and go to all the people uh it, you're working with or the context in which you're ministering and run kind of a listening campaign yeah. ask people what do you love about this place what do you love about this church what do you love about where you're living what do you what do you what makes you upset? What makes you angry about it? What do you find frustrating? And then begin to kind of, you'll begin to see patterns there of, mm. of where the real needs are, but it'll be a, it'll be a response then that's rooted in the actual needs, a felt needs of, of the people yeah. one is seeking to serve rather than one's presumptions about who they are and what they need. Uh, and then in relation to that, I think, um prioritizing that that moment of listening before mm. acting looking before we leap as it were yeah. uh and 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 then beginning from that point and i think the very act of listening and there's a lovely i've been thinking about this in relation to we've just been through easter and and in the easter cycle of readings is the story of the road to emmaus mm. and there's a beautiful we are you know often uh, we we kind of condemn the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, rightly so in many ways. But there's a there's a remarkable set of gestures that they engage in. I think we can that 
that would fundamentally change our political atmosphere, both inside the church and how churches relate more broadly, and then how they relate to the in terms of neighbor love. And the disciples do three things. One is they talk to a stranger. So they don't kill, coerce, run away from or cause to flee that stranger. Even though they don't recognize Jesus, like Jesus is locked behind a whole structure of misrecognition. Mm. They can't believe that he's risen from the dead. They can't believe that this is Jesus, even though they know him. He's this prisoner, this executed prisoner. He's locked behind all these stereotypes and things they don't like and disagree right. with. But they still talk to him despite the fact that they don't recognize him. Then this stranger does something very, very bad. This stranger fundamentally challenges their view of scripture and gets angry with them. <laughs> you fools, Jesus says, and, and goes to that which they count most sacred and says, no, no, you've totally misunderstood it. Like it's like my uncle at Thanksgiving, you know, no, 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 yeah, you, you've totally yeah, misunderstood exactly. your theology. Exactly. But they, they don't get angry with Jesus. They stick with Jesus, despite the angry stranger who is offending that which they hold most sacred. Mm. And then what do they do? They invite Jesus to eat with them. They sit and break bread together. And at that point, mm. what feels like a curse becomes a blessing. They recognize the risen Lord. And so this, this sense of what I think the disciples begin with listening and talking rather than killing, coercing. And so they do politics. They hold with someone they find deeply disagreeable, who even challenges that which they might find most sacred, and they engage in an act of hospitality, mm. and and there and therein discover a point of shared life, not just any shared life, but communion. Mm. And so I think there's a deep wisdom in how the disciples act that we can learn from: listen, mm. talk, hold with someone we find disagreeable, and act of acts of hospitality to discover shared life together. Mm, that's good. That's really good. Dr. Brotherton, I feel like we are only at the beginning of a much longer, valuable conversation. So I hope that we can do this again soon. Let me uh, let me end with this question. How can people follow your work? Oh, that's very good. Uh, yeah, so so I've got a own podcast. I do recommend it where I explore these themes uh, extensively um, called Listen, Organize, Act. And that's available on um, Apple Podcasts and all, all platforms. So do, do listen. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, the, it's registers my birthplace. So it's at West London man, uh, all one <laughs> word. Um, and then obviously books Christ and common life. And I've just got a book about to come out uh, later this year called, uh, which is a, a primer in Christian ethics, Christ and the struggle to live well. Um, Fantastic. So Who will this be published by? Uh, be Cambridge University Press. Um, Fantastic. It'll be priced appropriately, I'm sure. Yes, no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. Well, we, we very much look forward to that. And Dr. Brotherton, you're just down the road. You are a neighbor and friend. We're very grateful for your work. I hope that we can do this again soon. At the very least, I hope we can uh, get together, share a meal together, and continue these important conversations. Indeed. Thank Indeed. you for your no. work. Honor, honor and delight to, to be with you. Take care. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf. This is a listener favorite, during which time we ask guests, faculty, staff at Southeastern and so on, what's on their bookshelf right now? And today, Dr. Keithley, you're on the hot seat. So what's on your bookshelf? Well, I have been working this summer with a study group about how to deal with the question of transgenderism. And one book that I have read that is I have found very helpful is written by Alan Branch. Alan and I went to seminary together. In fact, when we graduated, uh, we walked across the podium together. And so Alan is now an ethicist at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. He has written one of the best little books that I have found that addresses the question of transgenderism called Affirming God's Image addressing the transgender question with science and scripture. Whenever we think about issues related to LGBTQ, one of these is not like the others. Transgenderism is a unique issue and problem, and I like the way that Dr. Branch approaches the question. He recognizes that there is a mental health issue that's called gender dysphoria, and it is a very real thing, and that 
in the church as we minister to those who are struggling with this type of dysphoria. We need to do so with sensitivity. We need to do so with compassion and with empathy, recognizing that this is almost always um, a symptom of a greater struggle. Mm. It appears, uh, according to the best studies we have, uh, nearly 40% of those who identify as transgender will attempt suicide. 80% will have some type of suicidal thought. We were with the grandchildren last weekend, and our oldest grandson said that uh, a transgender person in his school committed suicide Mm. just the week before. So when we're dealing with those struggling with those issues, we need to do so with pastoral sensitivity. That being said, transgenderism is a socio-political movement. It has very much an agenda to normalize entirely different definitions of what it means to be a person, of, of how we have traditionally and biblically understood sexuality, its purpose and role uh, in, in human flourishing. And those who are promoting the agenda, I think we, we have the responsibility to speak prophetically to that and to stand up for uh, some very important issues, especially when we're thinking about minors, Uh, being subjected to medical transitioning, um, things of that nature. So what I really like about Dr. Branch's book is that it knows how to walk and chew gum at the same time, (laughs) you know, that it deals with the pastoral sensitivity uh, very well, and it handles uh, handles this issue, the biblical texts that are relevant, and, and I really do appreciate that. Also, at the same time, he he, he says, here's why we need to stand and stand firmly on certain issues that, that are um, come to the fore whenever we're dealing with uh, transgenderism. So the name of the book is Affirming God's Image, and it's by our own Southeastern grad, Alan Branch. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating and brief review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.